0: This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. ends. Violet ends. Violet ends. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Jen Carpenter and this is Violet End. Welcome to your mid-summer finale. This is the last new episode until September, as I need every waking moment between now and then to prepare for a festival of oddities, which we'll talk about in a bit here at the end of the show. Like the majority of this season's episodes so far, this case was not on my radar at all. I had never heard of this case until this past 4th of July. So I know people like to go to the lake and here and there and all over the place for the 4th. Not me, not this year. I wanted to do nothing more than spend the whole day cuddling with my cute little dogs on the couch, falling in and out of naps as I watched murder show and I was off to a like I was off to a solid start, and then I was like seventy per cent asleep, dozing off middle of the day when I heard the narrator say in a small northern Michigan town, and I was awake <laughs> wide awake hoping that it was one I had heard of so I could go back to sleep. But alas, that was not to be. And here we are. (laughs) That's where today's story begins in a small northern Michigan town. If you've ever traveled up north by way of US 127, then you've driven past Harrison, a blink-and-you'll-miss-it town of just over 2,000 located on Bud Lake. If you've ever stopped at the Claire Rest Area on 127 as your halfway point, my fellow Michiganders know what I'm talking about here. After you're done peeing and stretching your legs and grabbing a pop, you'll drive past Harrison about 10 minutes later as you continue north. Harrison began as a mining town, and today it is home to the Clare County Fair and the Frostbite Winter Festival. And this is the town that the Lawfer family called home. Bob and Lois Lauffer were married on August 16, 1968, when he was 23 and she was 19. Their daughter Candy was born six months later on February 23, 1969, and their son Randy was born two years after that on June 19, 1972. The Lauffers were a pretty close-knit family. They lived about five miles outside of Harrison in a pretty rural area So they weren't really in a neighborhood, per se, where the kids could, like, play with the neighbors, ride bikes together, um, because their neighbors were bears. And coyotes, probably. As a result, Candy and Randy were best friends. They did everything together. Randy was small for his age, kind of shy, kind of quiet. And his older sister was his defender and protector. Bob was a Vietnam War vet and an active member of his local VFW post. Lois was a stay-at-home mom. The entire family enjoyed camping and fishing and exploring the great outdoors together. Just truly like your quintessential family from rural northern Michigan. Until one day in September of 1987 it changed everything. Before we jump into today's episode, I do need to thank our sponsor. Take a bite out of summer with HelloFresh. From chef-created recipes to their new fresh and fit summer menu, HelloFresh brings flavor right to your door. Summertime is a busy time for all of us, but when you need dinner fast, don't think delivery, think HelloFresh. Their fast and fresh recipes are ready in just 15 minutes or less. Plus... It's cheaper than takeout by about 25%. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit for a reason. I love not having to have the what's for dinner argument with my family every night. HelloFresh does the planning for us, and I'm all about anything that saves me a trip to the grocery store. Getting everything I need to make a healthy, delicious meal delivered right to my door is pretty awesome. And now you too can experience the awesomeness and save some money doing it. Go to HelloFresh.com slash ViolentEnds50 and use code ViolentEnds50 for 50% off plus free shipping. Again, that is HelloFresh.com slash ViolentEnds50, promo code ViolentEnds50 for 50% off plus free shipping. And... Be sure to tell him I sent you. Alright, buckle up buttercups because you are in for a wild ride. September 15th, 1987 was a Tuesday. Harrison High School had just started the 87-88 school year. Candy was a senior, and Randy was a sophomore. Randy had made arrangements to spend the night at a friend's house after school, so Candy last saw her brother walking away from the school through the parking lot as she was boarding the bus that they usually rode together to go home. She assumed that he was walking to meet up with the friend that he was staying with and that together they would head to the friend's house for the night. But the next day, the phone rang at the law for home, and it was the school asking why Randy was absent without being excused. Until that moment, Randy's parents assumed that he'd gone home with his friend, spent the night at his house, and gone to school with him in the morning. So they called the house of said friend only to find out that, yes, Randy was supposed to spend the night the night before, but he never showed up. And you didn't think to call? Like, uh, where is the responsibility? Like, if a kid is supposed to come spend the night at my house and he just doesn't show up, I'm calling the parents to make sure things are okay. But that's that's just me. So then Randy's parents started calling his other friends and his schoolmates and the neighbors, but nobody had seen him since his sister saw him walking away from the school the day before. Initially, the Laughers thought that Randy probably ran away, he was mad at his dad because he had wanted his dad to sign him up for a hunter's safety course, and his dad wouldn't do it. So they were in a little tiff, uh, and I guess it wasn't out of character for him to take off to teach his dad a lesson. They thought maybe he was camping out in an outbuilding in the woods near their home, um, you know, just just being being a bratty kid, but. When another night passed and he still wasn't back, they started to worry. Randy enjoyed the outdoors, but he wasn't a survive the wilderness on your own for several days type of kid. So the police were contacted and posters were made and hung up around town and search parties went out. But there was no sign of Randy Lawfer. Randy's school photo was put on milk cartons and on flyers that were mailed out by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Still, nothing. The only tip authorities got was from a couple that lived near the loafers and knew them pretty well. And they said that they had seen Randy downtown shortly after he got out of school the day that he disappeared. They said that he was in the passenger seat of a gray van headed north out of town and that he had leaned out the window and waved to his neighbors as he passed, so they were positive that it was him, like they had an interaction with him. They didn't just see him. He waved to them, they waved to him, but they didn't get a good look at the driver, and they didn't take down the license plate number, because why would they? He wasn't in distress, like there was nothing for them to be concerned about. They just remembered that they had seen him. At the time of his disappearance, Randy Lauffer was 15 years old. He was five foot three and maybe 100 pounds soaking wet. He had blonde hair, pale skin, and was last seen wearing a t-shirt and a pair of shorts with a red patch on them. The Clare County Fair was in town at the time, which led to a couple of theories. A, that Randy had run away with the circus. He, I guess, loved carnivals and fairs and circuses and often talked about joining a traveling show one day. Or two, that those damn carnies were at it again. I'm not really sure how we wound up with two episodes in a row blaming Carnies, but here we are nonetheless. Authorities assumed that if Randy Lawfer had met some horrible fate, it had to be outsiders. This was Harrison, Michigan, after all. Bad things didn't happen here, and bad people didn't live here. Whatever hope the lawfers had that Randy might still be alive faded as Christmas 1987 came and went. Christmas was Randy's favorite holiday and he never would have missed it. With no leads, no clues, and now no hope, the case went cold. The prevailing theory was that Randy had left voluntarily, but then something bad had happened to him. Whether he fell into a body of water and drowned, or was attacked by animals, or hit by a car, or taken by those damn carnies, the lawfers knew that Randy was gone. And then, a twist. In January of 1988, so about four months after Randy went missing, the Clare County Sheriff's Department was contacted by authorities in Brevard County, Florida, who had questions about a Harrison resident. John Rodney McRae. McRae was a husband and a father who lived on a goat farm near the Law for home. His teenage son, Marty, was good friends with Randy. Marty was active in Boy Scouts and 4 H, and his dad was very involved in both organizations. John and his wife Barbara liked to dress up like clowns for events, and they enjoyed entertaining the little ones. Uh, the entire McRae family had assisted in the searches for Randy in the early days of his disappearance. Their land had actually been part of the search area simply because it was so close to the law property. So, like, what could authorities in Florida possibly want with good old John McRae? As it turned out, they just wanted to check in on their prime suspect in the unsolved disappearances of three young Florida boys several years earlier. And the Clare County Sheriff's Department was like, uh, what? Rivard County continued, you know, I mean, we're sure he's already on your radar and everything as he was convicted of violently murdering a young boy in Michigan years and years ago. And Clare County was like, excuse me? What? And then Brevard County said, y'all might be in trouble up there. Do you have any missing boys? And Claire County said, we gotta go by. They booked it out to John McRae's farm and were like, what's up, motherfucker? We know who you are. We know what you've done. Where the fuck is Randy Lawfer? you low-rate John Wayne Gacy wannabe? Unsurprisingly, McRae was uncooperative, and he refused to answer any of their questions. So, authorities left, and they came back with a search warrant for the property. But when they returned, the McRae's were long gone. According to their landlord, Vicki Hudson, who also lived on the property, John had purchased a set of tires from her one afternoon, saying he would pay her later, and then the following morning, the whole family was just gone. They'd left their black lab tied to a tree with a note on his collar asking Vicki to take good care of him. So, Clare County searched the property with cadaver dogs and probes, but they found nothing. Inside the McRae's trash trailer, they found no evidence of a crime. But the trailer itself was a crime. It was completely trashed. They were letting their goats live in their trailer with them, which is disgusting because goats poop. Literally, constantly, like non-stop. That's so nasty. They did find one interesting thing, though. Inside a closet, there were three missing child posters, one for each of the three missing boys from Florida. And with that, the picture of what must have happened to Randy Lawfer became a lot clearer, and the hunt for a serial killer was on. But who was this monster who'd been hiding in plain sight all along? John Rodney McRae was born on November 20, 1934 in Belleville, Michigan, a Detroit suburb with about 4,000 residents, so another pretty small town. He was the oldest child of John Sr. and Josephine McRae, and he had just one sibling, a younger sister. The McCraes were known to be good law-abiding citizens. I didn't find anything that said what John senior did for a living, but Josephine was a kindergarten teacher. They led a pretty simple, quiet life, but they moved around a lot, and little John was always a handful. He was a bully and a troublemaker, and his brushes with the law began early. Petty theft, vandalism, running away, he was always in trouble for something. In the early 1940s, the McCrays moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, so that John Jr. could attend military school. In 1946, when John was 12, the family moved back to Michigan and settled in St. Clair Shores, a Detroit suburb on the picturesque Lake St. Clair with a population of just under 60,000, so that's a much bigger town. There, John Jr. attended Lakeview High School, where he played football and made enemies of teachers and parents all over town. He was the kid that parents were like, You stay away from that John McRae. He is trouble. But nobody suspected he was the kind of trouble that would turn him into a serial killer. Although they fucking should have, because as a kid, he killed and dissected a neighbor's pet dog and began molesting children that were significantly younger than him, both boys and girls. So he wasn't just trouble like, he'll give you cigarettes and get you to skip school. He was dangerous. On September 9th, 1950, the McCrae's 8-year-old neighbor, Joey Housey, disappeared. Joey was the youngest of three boys born to Joseph and Helen Housey. His brother Jim was 17 and Don was 13, so Joey was the baby, baby of the family, and he was described as a happy boy and an avid Cub Scout who loved adventuring and exploring. As was the way of the 1950s, Joey was out and about in the neighborhood the day that he went missing, doing his thing, playing all by himself, but he knew that he had to be home in time for supper. He also knew that he wasn't allowed to go to the Jefferson Beach Amusement Park, which was in the neighborhood, by himself, but several neighbors reported seeing him there that day. When Joey didn't return for supper, his parents and brothers set out to look for him. When hours passed and they couldn't find him, they contacted police. Joey's dad was a high-ranking official in the UAW, which was, and is, huge in the Detroit area, so the case was taken seriously right from jump. Police, the UAW, and the Housies' neighbors scoured the neighborhood and the surrounding areas around the clock. This search party included the McRae's. Mrs. McRae had been Joey's kindergarten teacher, after all. Two frantic weeks went by before Joey's body was found. On September 23, 1950, searchers were canvassing an area known as Martin's Drain just a few blocks from the housey home, and basically across the street from where the McCray family lived, when a volunteer sat down on a concrete slab in the woods. It had been raining, so the ground was all muddy and squishy, and as the volunteer sat down, the concrete slab slid from the muddy mound that it was like sitting on top of, and the mud shifted, revealing a small, decomposing human hand wearing a silver Cub Scout ring. 17-year-old Jim, who was part of the search party in the woods, had the unenviable task of returning home to tell his parents that little Joey was dead. His throat had been slashed, his genitals and other parts of his body mutilated, and there were signs of a sexual assault. The St. Clair Shores community was stunned. Who could possibly be capable of such evil towards a little boy? The answer was another little boy. Well, not little, but still a kid. Through questioning, authorities learned that John McRae, the 15-year-old town troublemaker, had a sharp razor for model airplane building that was the same kind of blade that they believed had been used to kill Joey Housey. When authorities asked to examine the blade, they found traces of blood on it. They planned to bring John in for questioning on September 30th, 1950, a week after Joey's body was found, but things took a really weird turn before that could happen. On that Friday, September 29th, John confided in his father that he had had a dream that he killed Joey. His father's reaction was to take him out to the lake and tell him to swim to Canada. For reference, Canada really was not that far at all. The U.S.-Canada border cuts directly through the middle of Lake St. Clair. So his dad told him to swim to Canada if he was guilty, and John got in the water and started swimming. But Lake St. Clair is like 25 miles across, and before long, John got tired. So he turned back. His father had already left, probably assuming that his kid was going to drown. Um, and he stole a speedboat that was docked near the home, and he didn't swim to Canada, but he made his way to his uncle's house in Ontario just the same. And that's exactly where authorities found him hiding on October 1st. McCrae was taken to a jail outside of St. Clair Shores. The community was so outraged, authorities were not confident in their ability to keep him safe if they took him back into town. During questioning, he admitted to killing Joey Housey, but he was fuzzy on the details. He said that he saw Joey hanging out at Jefferson Beach, he offered to take him on a little adventure, then he drove with him to Martin's Drain, where he blacked out. He admitted to slashing Joey's throat with his model airplane razor, but said that he did not remember sexually assaulting him or mutilating him, and that he didn't believe he was capable of doing something like that. Authorities disagreed. Because of the heinous nature of the crime, the 15-year-old was tried as an adult for first-degree murder. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge stood before Joey Housie's family, and he promised them that Joey's killer would die in prison. And he did, but not in the way that the judge intended. I bet that you will never ever guess where John McRae was sent to serve out his sentence. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. All roads lead to Ionia. He spent over 20 years there, but by the 1970s, times were a-changin'. I joke about Ionia, but John McRae, a very dangerous man, was there with a lot of other very dangerous men that we've talked about before, including Donald O'Brien, who murdered little Ronna Ray Cipher in Grand Ledge, and Keith Hamilton and Billy Bargee, who murdered my dad's friend Stan Casey in Lansing. So in the episode in which we talked about Ronna Ray Cipher and Stan Casey, We talked about how and why these dangerous men were allowed to walk free to kill again. By 1970, doctors, lawyers, and civil rights activists were gaining traction in their argument that asylums, which Ionia was an asylum, were meant to be treatment facilities. They weren't just for locking people up and throwing away the key. Although, in the examples I just gave, they fucking should have done that. The either provide them with proper treatment for their mental health issues or let them go, this is inhumane movement, was successful. And in 1970, they started letting them go. Billy Bargy was the first. He was released in May of 1970 when he was 39. He went on to murder a boy in Lansing and attack multiple boys in Colorado before he was rearrested and sent to prison for life. John McRae... 38, was released in February of 1972. He'd been at the Ionia Asylum for 21 years at that point, and he was considered a model inmate. He'd gone through multiple sex offender rehabilitation programs. He'd become a skilled mechanic and had never exhibited any violent tendencies. He'd even been made a trustee, which we've talked about too many times as well. He was regularly allowed to leave the asylum in a company vehicle and run errands for them and then come back, like completely unsupervised. So on February second, 1972, without so much as a courtesy call to Joey Housey's family to let them know that this was happening, John Rodney McRae was freed. He returned to his parents' home in St. Clair Shores, got a job, and in 1973 he married Barbara Ann Heckman. The following year, in 1974, John and Barbara had their first and only child, a son, Martin. The year after that, in 1975, John's parole ended and he moved with his new little family down to Florida. The McRae settled in Brevard County, which is right on the ocean, kind of right in the middle of the state. Think like the Cocoa Beach area. There he got a job as a guard at a juvenile detention facility. How? Just how? The how remains a point of contention to this day. According to officials, McCrae used fake documents to conceal his criminal record in order to get the job. But according to McRae, the job was part of an inmate rehabilitation program, and they knew all about his background when they hired him. However it happened, a violent child murderer and sexual abuser wound up responsible for the care of troubled youth. From 1976 to 1980, John McRae worked at the Brevard Correctional Institution in Sharps. I think it's Sharps. It's S-H-A-R-P-E-S. I guess it could be like Sharpe, Sharpez. We're just going to call it Sharps. Where he lived in a trailer on the grounds. During that time, three young boys from the area disappeared, all with connections to McRae. The first was Keith Fleming. Keith was born on September eighteenth, 1963, and he was your typical Florida surfer boy. He had shiny, shoulder-length blonde hair and a deep tan from countless hours at the beach. His pictures reminded me so much. I cannot remember what movie it was, like a movie from the 90s, maybe even the 80s, where there was a young girl who had this huge crush on this super cute, like blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy. Oh God. I can see him. Like I can see him. He's got like a white button-down shirt on. He's got that blonde 90s hair where it's parted down the middle and like poofy on both sides. I can't, I can't remember the movie. I can't place it, but I can see him in my head. And that's who this kid looked like. Just gorgeous, gorgeous little boy. Keith lived in Cocoa Beach and he often spent from sunup to sundown surfing at the Cocoa Beach Pier. As he neared his teen years, Keith became a bit of a rebel, and his parents sent him to rehab after finding him with the devil's lettuce. They promised him a new surfboard if he promised to stay out of trouble and never touch the wacky tobacco again. On April 28, 1977, 13-year-old Keith's parents dropped him off at his girlfriend Gina's house after school and told him to be home in time for supper. Keith and Gina spent the afternoon swimming, hanging out with friends, and riding bikes. As dinner time neared, Keith said that he had to go home, so Gina gave him a ride on her bike to the corner of Osceola Street and A1A. He would hitchhike the rest of the way home from there, which was pretty typical for the time. As they said goodbye, Keith and Gina shared a kiss. Her very first kiss and then she never saw Keith again. When Gina got home, she told her mom that Keith was hitchhiking home, and her mom was like, uh, no, I don't think so. So they hopped in the car, they went back to where Gina had dropped him off, they were going to pick him up and give him a ride home, but they couldn't find him, and he never made it home for supper. At the time of his disappearance, Keith was 5 feet tall, 110 pounds, with straight, shoulder-length strawberry blonde hair and brown eyes. He was wearing a green t shirt that said thirsty turtle on it, blue jeans, flip flops, and a gold chain. Police classified Keith a runaway. There were no searches, there was no investigation, and there was no talk of John McRae, the creepy guy who liked to sit at the Cocoa Beach Pier and watch young boys surf. That connection would not be made until a couple of years and a couple of missing boys later. Kipling Randall Hess III, who went by Kip, was a literal Boy Scout. He was born August 2, 1966, on Merritt Island, home of the Kennedy Space Center, to Kipling Randall Hess II, a geologist-turned-real-estate investor, and his wife Anna. In the spring of 1979, when Kip was 12, His Boy Scout troop was called to duty at the Divine Mercy Catholic Church Carnival on Merritt Island. They were tasked with carnival cleanup and, in exchange, were allowed to attend the carnival for free and camp out on the grounds. This is where Kip met 44-year-old John McRae, who was working as a security guard at the carnival. Kip was smaller than most of the other boys. He was 5'4, 90 pounds, and as the little rich kid, was often singled out and picked on. McRae saw this and he stepped in to defend Kip against some kids that were picking on him. Now, most of the articles that I've read went on to say that McRae kind of took Kip under his wing for the duration of the carnival and that Kip and McRae's son Marty played together and became fast friends, but Marty McRae was only 4 years old in the spring of 1979, and Kip was almost 13, so I don't know about them being friends, but either way, Kip did know the McRae's well enough that theirs was one of the numbers that Kip's parents placed a frantic call to the day that Kip disappeared. March 27, 1979 was the day before my husband and his twin sister's first birthday, and also a Tuesday. Just like every other day, Kip got up, got ready, ate breakfast, and hopped on his bike to head to school. Some reports say that Kip made it to school that morning but never made it to class. Some say he went to first period before vanishing, while others say that he never made it to school at all and was last seen by his mother riding away on his bike. These are the same newspapers that claimed he was best friends with a four-year-old So, make of their accuracy what you will. When Kip didn't return home that day, his parents contacted the school, who informed them that Kip had been absent. So, they contacted the police and began calling all of the people Kip was known to spend time with, including the McCrays. Search parties were formed, and just like when Joey Housie went missing in 1950 and when Randy Lauffer would go missing in 1987, Good Samaritan John McRae helped the Hess family look for their missing son. His bike was later found in a nearby creek, but he had simply vanished. The only clue was a note he left behind that morning that said, Goodbye, Mom and Dad. So, just like Keith Fleming, who disappeared two years earlier, Kip Hess was classified as a runaway, But the Hesses knew their son hadn't run away to join the circus, like police theorized, and they had the money to search for him themselves, so they did. They paid a private investigator $500 a day to look for their son, but he was never found. Charles Edward Collingwood, who went by Eddie, was a trouble kid from rural North Florida who'd had his fair share of brushes with the law. As a teen, he was sentenced to four years at the Brevard Correctional Institution in Sharps, where John McRae worked as a guard. For Grand Theft Auto, that's what he was sent there for. The same year that Kip Hess disappeared, rumors began to fly at the institution that John McRae and 19-year-old Eddie Collingwood were involved in a sexual relationship. McRae denied the accusations, claiming that the reason he and Eddie spent so much time together was because Eddie was his informant, narking on the other inmates. But Eddie, according to sources, was intent on exposing the affair, maybe because he would rather be seen as the guard's lover than the local narc. I would imagine that that would be safer for him. On December 12, 1979, Eddie, who was now 20, was doing yard work just outside the facility's fence when he told the guard on duty that he had to take a leak, but then he just done disappeared. At first, officials at the facility suspected that 45-year-old John McRae had helped his young lover escape, but over time, they came to fear that something much worse had happened. Because Eddie Collingwood wasn't the first young acquaintance of John McRae's to go missing that year. Kip Hess's parents had mentioned McRae to police as someone they should question about their son's disappearance, and they didn't really have a reason other than an unsettling feeling about the man who liked to hang around young boys and dress up as a clown. At the time, that wasn't enough to consider him a suspect. But now, and with a young man he'd been having an affair with also missing, Once they started looking into his past, they easily discovered the secret that he'd been hiding, that he had already killed a young boy once. With this information, they put together a profile. John McRae preyed on young boys who were small in stature, often bullied or loners, and who had reason to trust him. He was the son of Joey Housey's kindergarten teacher, the security guard at Kip Hess's church carnival the guard at Eddie Collingwood's prison, and the old dude who hung around the Cocoa Beach Pier with Keith Fleming and his friends. In January of 1980, McRae was forced to resign from his job at the detention center as authorities investigated the claims made against him about his inappropriate relationship with Eddie Collingwood. When he was questioned about the disappearances of Eddie, Kip, and Keith, he promptly fled the Sunshine State. When authorities were cleaning out his locker, they found one of Kip Hess's missing posters taped inside. Not much is known about where the McCraes went for the first few years after they left Florida, which is terrifying, but in 1984, they returned to Michigan. Before we get into what happened once they came home, though, I do want to thank today's other sponsor. If you love true crime podcasts, and I know you do, I want to tell you about True Crime Obsessed. Each week on True Crime Obsessed, hosts Patrick and Jillian tell a fascinating true crime story by recapping a popular documentary based on the case. Their storytelling is detailed and suspenseful, but also entertaining and funny. A listener review put it best by saying, These two strike the perfect balance between humor and thriller. Listening to them, I'm belly laughing while at the same time locking my doors and turning on all the lights. They even have an annual weekend fan convention that brings them together with thousands of their listeners and other top true crime podcast creators with over 200 million downloads and a thriving community of listeners. True crime obsessed has been at the top of the podcast charts for over six years. They have over 30,000 five-star reviews on Apple podcasts and their live shows sell out theaters all over the U S and internationally. If you've never checked them out, now is the time to join their community. They promise that they aren't a cult, but they are going to be your new podcast besties. So if you're looking for a new true crime obsession, follow True Crime Obsessed wherever you get your podcasts. There are over 300 episodes waiting for you to check out right now covering everything from Serial killers, to notorious murders, to the cases you haven't yet heard about but won't be able to forget. That's True Crime Obsessed wherever you're listening right now. Alright, back to today's nightmare. So, now it's 1984, and the McCrays are kinda sorta on the run from Florida authorities. They've rented a section of Vicki Hudson's sprawling property in Clare County, just south of the small town of Harrison. They're living in a small trailer that they put up on blocks and raising angora goats in a ramshackle collection of outbuildings. Their trailer is a trash pit. They're keeping goats inside with them. They've got kittens being born in drawers. A lot of living creatures in just a very small, confined space. Just really, really gross and unsanitary. They're active in Boy Scouts and the 4-H. John and his wife are still cosplaying as clowns. In the fall of 1987, John was 53, his son Marty was 13, and I have no idea how old Barbara was, but she was completely disabled and unable to work by this point, so John was taking care of her. His son Marty's closest friends, who also happened to be their closest neighbors, were Randy Lawfer and Mike Heinzelman. Mike's father was a volunteer auxiliary deputy, which basically means a volunteer... Police officer, which I did not know was a thing, but apparently it is. The three boys spent a ton of time together, usually at the McRae property, which is gross, but also makes sense because there was like no adult supervision happening, right? John would take all three boys to 4 H events and on Boy Scout outings. Listen, when we're working and trying to maintain a household and we have kids involved in all of the extracurriculars, it's always a relief when there's like that one parent who's always willing to do the work, right? Oh, I'll take them to this thing, that thing, all of the things. But but let's, um, if John McRae is teaching us anything today, it's that we should just mayhaps give a bit more thought as to why certain people are always wanting to take our kids' places and be around them. Because the good folks of Harrison were entrusting the safety of their children to a convicted child murderer and molester who was the prime suspect in the cases of three missing boys and they had no idea. Even the authorities had no idea. Until they got that phone call from Brevard County in January of 1988, four months after Randy Lawford disappeared and that blew their small town up like a bomb. They attempted to question John McRae, but he was uncooperative, and then again by the time that they returned with a search warrant, the McRae's were long gone, having literally fled in the middle of the night. Didn't even take their damn dog with them. What John left behind, possibly on purpose, was haunting. He left missing posters for Keith Fleming, Kip Hess, and Eddie Collingwood in a cupboard. While not enough to charge him with their murders, this was definitely enough for Florida authorities to confidently say that John McRae killed all three boys, officially making him a serial killer. Michigan authorities tracked the McRae's down to Mesa, Arizona. They asked Mesa PD to keep an eye on them until they could get there to question John, and Mesa PD informed them that that the McCraes were in the possession of a gray van that matched the description of the one Randy Lawfer was seen in the day he disappeared. How did the police in Clare County miss that? This is a tiny town. I would think they would have gone looking for all of the gray vans, and he had a gray van. But whatever. Anyway, so he's got the gray van, and... Do you want to know what was on the bumper stickers on the back of his van? He had a bumper sticker that said, Have you hugged your kids today? And another one that said, Kids, don't go with strangers. Nice disguise, bro. When authorities questioned John McRae's acquaintances in Clare County, they learned that things were much worse than they could have imagined. Mike Heinselman, who was friends with Randy Lauffer and Marty McRae, whose dad was a cop, recalled that he was hanging out with Marty one night not long after Randy went missing, and Marty and his dad were fighting because his dad wanted Marty to dig a hole. He was telling Marty that he needed him to dig this hole on his property, like, right now, and Marty didn't want to do it. At the time, Mike assumed the hole was for a dead goat, or a cat, or a dog, or some other farm animal. But now, could Randy Lawfer have been kidnapped and murdered not just by his best friend's dad, but by his best friend as well? Detectives from the Michigan State Police traveled to Arizona to question John McRae about the disappearance of 15-year-old Randy Lawfer. McRae was not uncooperative. He talked. He was smug, in fact. At one point, he literally said to detectives, I was convicted the first time because they found the body. Do you think that I'd ever let that happen again? If you don't have a body, you don't have me. You. Mm. This is where, like, jailhouse accidents come in, right? So they got a search warrant for McCray's van. They doused it in luminol, but they found nothing. They used cadaver dogs and ground probes and sonar to search his property in Michigan over and over and over. Nothing. So they had to return to Michigan with nothing, except for the knowledge that Randy Laufer had not run away to join the circus. He'd been murdered by the town clown. Now let's ride the Karma train 10 years into the future. It's fall 1997. I've just started my senior year of high school, the Spice Girls and Biggie Smalls are topping the charts, Titanic is about to secure its chokehold on movie theaters around the world, and Vicki Hudson has had it with former tenant John McRae's shit. When he fled the property he rented from her in the middle of the night almost 10 years earlier, he left a mess behind, literally and figuratively. She'd long since had his junky trailer removed, but the blocks that it once sat on were still there and they were causing her problems. Her horses kept knocking into them and tripping over them, requiring medical care. So one fall afternoon, she told her hired hand, Clinton Goodnow, to dig a big hole where the McRae trailer used to be, push the cement blocks into it, and cover them up. So Clinton rode the backhoe out to the old McRae site, scooped up a big pile of dirt, and fell right into a goddamn nightmare. As he pulled the first scoop of dirt up out of the ground, he was confronted by the past in the most literal way. A human skull stared back at him from the bucket of dirt as clearly as if someone had placed it there for him to find. He went and got Vicky who stared at the skull for a few seconds before saying, "Well, let's just go on and tell the sheriff. I don't I don't know why I just did a country accent. This is northern Michigan, but if you've ever been to those really little towns in northern Michigan, they do kind of feel like the south." Even before they arrived on scene, the sheriff's department knew that Randy Lawfer had been found. They were able to locate about 60% of a human skeleton, including clothing. There was a pair of socks tied with a rope, inside the socks were foot bones, and there was a pair of boys' shorts with a red patch on the front, the same shorts that Randy was wearing the day he went missing. An autopsy determined that Randy had been tortured, bound, stabbed multiple times in the neck, back, and pelvis, likely sexually assaulted, then dismembered before being buried on different parts of the McRae property. Authorities were baffled. How had they missed this? They had scoured the McRae property so many times. Well, as it turns out, goat urine can throw off the scent of a decaying human body. You learn something new every day. Did John McRae know this, or was this just like a happy accident for him? Here's what I know. We're now going to be leery of anyone who consistently volunteers to take our kids' places and anyone who owns goats. And if they like to spend time with our kids and have a goat farm, immediately no red flag alert, call the FBI. After 10 long years of being gaslit by officials who kept telling them that their son ran away to join the circus when they knew he would never do such a thing, the Lawfers got their boy back, and unlike the parents of Keith Fleming, Kip Hess, and Eddie Collingwood, they lived to see their son's remains recovered and to see justice served to his killer. Randy was buried at Pleasant Plains Cemetery in Clear County, where his parents and, sadly, his sister Candy have all since joined him. On October 16, 1997, 63-year-old John McRae and 23-year-old Martin McRae were arrested and extradited from Arizona to Michigan, where they were charged with first-degree murder and being an accessory after the fact, respectively. Because Marty McRae was only 13 at the time of Randy Lawford's murder, the charges against him were quickly dropped and he returned to Arizona. But he was not out of trouble, which we'll get to shortly. As John McRae sat in a holding cell awaiting trial for first-degree murder, he requested to see his old neighbor, Dean Heinzelman. Dean was the father of Mike Heinzelman, one of Marty McRae and Randy Lauffer's best friends, and Dean was also still a volunteer auxiliary deputy. So he was in uniform when he arrived at the jail one night around 11 p.m. He let John McRae talk for a while before asking him, John, did you do it? According to Dean, McRae hanged his head and said, Dean, it was bad. It was bad. This interaction became a key part of the prosecution's case against McRae when he went to trial in 1998. On December 11, 1998, over a year after he was arrested and over 11 years after Randy Laufer went missing, 64-year-old John Rodney McRae was convicted of first-degree murder in the death of 15-year-old Randy Laufer his neighbor, and one of his son's best friends. Following John's conviction, his wife, who chose to stick by him even though she knew he was guilty, told authorities that John had confessed to her once that he killed two of those three missing Florida boys, Kip Hess and Eddie Collingwood. The newspaper said that because she was his wife, her testimony was inadmissible. That seems wrong to me. Like, I know that they can't make you testify against your spouse, but they can't let you? I don't know. That sounds wrong to me, but that's that's what it said. So, armed with this information, authorities in Florida got permission to excavate the property where McCray's trailer in Florida had been. Both of the boys he killed in Michigan, Joey Howsey in 1950 and Randy Laufer in 1987, had been buried basically in his front yard. So, if he had killed the boys in Florida, and authorities were pretty sure that he had, their bodies were very likely near the trailer that he'd lived in. In late February of 1999, a University of Florida crew mapped a one-and-a-half-acre area around McCrae's old trailer using ground-penetrating radar, and they identified 32 buried objects that were possibly human remains. Randy Hess, Kip Hess's father, attended the excavation. As fate would have it, little Joey Housie's older brother Don, who was now 63 years old, and his wife were wintering in Eustace, Florida, as they did every year, when they saw the news about the excavation. Eustace is northwest of Orlando, so only about an hour and a half's drive from Brevard County, where the search was being conducted. So together, they traveled to the site and they spent the next several days sitting in deck chairs beside Kip Hess's dad, watching authorities dig. No human remains were found during that search, and none have been found since, even though authorities still believe that the boy's remains are in that area where John McRae and his family once lived. Meanwhile, back in Michigan, John McRae's attorneys were busy filing appeals. They argued that Dean Heinzelman's testimony should not have been admissible. Because he was in uniform when he visited McCrae at 11 o'clock, long past visiting hours, he was there as a law enforcement agent, not a friend. And because he had not identified himself as a law enforcement official or informed McCray of his rights, anything and everything McCray said during their conversation was inadmissible. In 2004, the Michigan Supreme Court overturned John McCray's guilty verdict and ordered a new trial. He was not released between trials, however. Now, 70 years old, John McRae went on trial for the murder of Randy Lawfer for a second time on May 3rd, 2005. The trial lasted just over a week, and on May 18th, he was found guilty again and sentenced to life in prison again. All that trouble just for this asshole to die at Jackson State Prison a month later on June 28, 2005, of Natural Causes. In 1950, a judge stood before the grieving family of slain Cub Scout Joey Housie and promised them that their son's killer would die in prison. And he did, but not before being freed for 25 years and killing at least four more young, innocent boys. And probably way more than that, let's be honest. This was the 70s and the 80s, golden age of the serial killer. I wish I could tell you that this is the end of our story, but it's not, sadly. While John McRae didn't give much in the way of motive, he did talk about how he'd been badly abused as a child. Whether physically or sexually or both, I'm not sure that wasn't specified, but the evil apple didn't fall far from the evil tree. On August 15, 2000, right in between his father's two trials for the murder of his childhood friend Randy Laufer, 26-year-old Marty McRae, who as a 13-year-old boy dug the hole that Randy's dismembered body was buried in and kept his father's awful secret for over a decade, was arrested for child molestation. Marty was married and had his own kids by this point and was living in Reno, Nevada, he took his daughter and a bunch of her friends, a total of six kids under the age of 12, on a four-wheeling trip a week earlier, on August 7, 2000. During the trip, Martin's truck broke down in the mountains, leaving the group stranded. When they didn't return home, Martin's wife called 911. Authorities searched through the night for the man and these six little girls, but they didn't find them. The following morning, Martin left the girls with the truck and he walked until he found a gas station where he was able to call for help. The group was rescued shortly after and six sets of terrified parents thought their nightmare was over until the little girls started telling their parents about the things that Martin did to them in the truck that night. He was officially accused of molesting an 8-year-old and a 6-year-old. Some reports say that one of those girls was his own daughter, but of course, because this involves the sexual assault of a child, names were protected and details were scarce. Martin was arrested a week later. On March 30, 2001, Martin McRae struck a plea deal. He pleaded guilty to one count of lewdness with a child under 14 and was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 10 years, heavy on the parole after 10 years promise. In exchange, Martin would try to get his father to confess to the murders of the boys in Florida. According to authorities, Martin really truly did try to get his dad to talk, but John was not having it. I'm not entirely sure how much time Martin wound up serving. I couldn't find that anywhere, but he definitely didn't do the life part of his sentence, because in 2016, 15 years after he was initially sentenced, he was arrested again for failing to register as a sex offender. So he was out sometime before the 15-year mark, and then he got arrested again. Today, according to the Nevada Inmate Search website and the Nevada Sex Offender Registry, Martin McRae is free as a bird. He's 49, and he lives in Reno, and holy fuck, he's a big dude. In the articles about Joey Howsey's murder, John McRae was often referred to as a husky kid. Martin, according to his stats on his sex offender profile, is six one, 270 pounds, with long red hair. Seeing a photo of someone's face is one thing, but knowing how big the McCraes were just makes it so much more terrifying that they were preying on these small, young children. Just gross, gross, gross. And that, my friends, is the horrifying tale of John Rodney McRae, the Michigan serial killer you've never heard of. Or maybe you have, but I definitely had not. My primary source for today's episode was season three, episode four of Buried in the Backyard on Oxygen, which is where I found out about this case. A full list of resources is available upon request. That is all I've got for today. So much for keeping this one short, which was my plan. This concludes our summer episodes. I will be back mid-September following a Festival of Oddities to finish out Season 5. If you miss me, go join Patreon. There's a bunch of bonus episodes sitting on Patreon ready for you to listen to. Come see me at Dead Time Stories or the Screamatorium. Come to a Festival of Oddities. It's September 2nd third, Labor Day weekend two days this year. I'll be there running around like a crazy person. Um... Yeah, so plenty of opportunities to interact over the next month and a half. But new podcast episodes isn't one of them. Until we see each other again, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.